All right. Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. We started a series on, on the book of uh, Genesis a few weeks back looking at the life of Joseph. Joseph, um, great character in the Old Testament, and we're following his life through. Before we get into that today, I, wanna, I don't know what you're, how you're feeling because spring has sprung. Do you know that? 21st of March was what, yesterday? Um, the econo- spring is here, winter is over, this is a good time. And I don't know what you're thinking as you look forward to the summer. For me, one of the things I look forward to because I like about the summer is um, films. Anyone here a film fan? Yeah, what happens towards the summer, kind of May onwards, you get the blockbusters come out, the big films. I don't know if you're gearing up because there's films coming out this year, the summer and beyond, that are all very, very exciting, if you like that kind of thing. And um, there's one that's coming out that I saw the trailer of the other day that I wanted just to show you this morning because it has particular relevance to the life of Joseph, I felt, as I watched this. And um, it's one of these ones where they're kind of taking an old franchise and they're trying to do something new with it, and we're going to watch it in a moment. And what I want you to take note of is what the mum says right at the beginning of the trailer. We're going to watch it, but I want you to take note of what the mummy says, and I will come back to that in just a minute. Are you ready, Charlie? (laughs) So exciting. So what did the mummy say at the beginning? If anything chases you, run. Okay, that's the title of today's sermon, run. Let's put this in some context. Uh, Joseph, as we've seen, um, he is inheriting the promises that were made. We saw back in Genesis 12 from his great-great-grandfather, I think it was Abraham. God came to Abraham, gave him great promises and said, you are going to bless you, going to bless the nations of the world through you. You're going to have descendants like the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. and give you this land. This is when on to his son Isaac, his son Jacob. And Jacob had a bunch of sons, one of them being Joseph. So this, this promise of God is running through the family. But when you get to kind of Joseph's generation with all his brothers, it didn't go quite according to plan. It seems Joseph has a bunch of dreams and he says, hey, you're my brothers, you're all going to bow down to me. And his brothers are like, what? They don't like him anyway because he's daddy's favorite. Daddy gave him a robe. And then so he's like, you're all going to bow down to me. Then there's another dream. He said, actually, not only are you going to bow down to daddy's going to bow down to me as well. And they're like, oh, daddy doesn't like that. And so they don't like him. And then one day they see him coming and with his flash robe on and they decide they want to kill him. And we've looked at that. They decide to kill him, but at the end they don't kill him. They sell him into slavery, which is still pretty bad, kind of a death sentence. So he gets sent off down to Egypt. Not going well for Joseph. And then when he's uh, in Egypt, he gets sold into a slave into the house of a man named Potiphar. And things start to look up a little bit. He becomes blessed by God while he's in the house. And he gets rises to a position of prominence running the house for his master Potiphar. He said basically Potiphar left everything to him except the food he ate, basically. So Joseph got to run everything. And so Joseph is there in this house. And things are finally going to look up for him. Um, despite the fact his brothers wanted to kill him, um, and things are going well. Okay, and now let's have a pick up the story in Genesis 39, verse 6. Okay, so it says, we'll go to the back end of verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Jonah and said, Lie with me. When he refused, And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there, were there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as he saw, she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master, his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Okay, big idea today. Big idea today. When we are faced with temptation to sin, we are to run. We are to run. Let's go through the passage. First thing, Joseph was hot. He was a good-looking man. In biblical language, they say handsome in form and appearance. We would say hot. That's our language. Think Zac Efron, Brad Pitt, Channing Tatum, Daniel Craig. Take your pick, ladies. One of them, he was a hottie, a bit of a hunk. And so that was just the way God had built him. But that's who he was. And Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, decides she likes the look of him. He's a bit, you know, he's, he's a bit tasty. I'm, I'm, I'm there. And the eye starts wandering towards him. We don't know where the husband is. We don't know what their relationship is like. But we know that's what she fancied. She fancied Joseph. And she tries to seduce him. She tries to say, come and lie with me. Which is a very kind of polite way of saying what she's intending for them. She's saying, come lie with me. Let's have sex. Joseph is like, no. No, I'm not going to do that. And he, interestingly, he, he says no, but he says it quite definitely. And he says it on three levels. First of all, he says, it's an abuse of trust. He says, my master. He, talk, he refers to Potiphar as his master. He knows that Potiphar's the boss. He knows that Potiphar's in charge. And he has a sense of loyalty to his boss, his master in this situation. Which is interesting because Joseph is a slave. But actually saying, no, he's my master. I'm not going to abuse the trust I've been given. I've been promoted in the household. I run it effectively. And I'm not going to abuse the trust that has been put in front of me. He also realized is that it would actually be an offense against her husband. He says, he says, my master's wife. He says, you're not my wife. You're someone else's wife. And I shouldn't, I'm not going to go against that because it will be an offense. If we um, read the Bible, we know from the Ten Commandments, which come up later in Exodus, that adultery is obviously a sin and being involved in that, we shouldn't be, be involved in that. But actually, if you read Proverbs, which is a lot more practical, it says there's lots of other reasons not to get involved in this as well. And basically, one of the reasons Proverbs set out is actually you don't fool around with a married woman because you incur the wrath of her husband. And actually, it just, it just doesn't make sense. You don't want the husband gunning for you. Because actually, he'll come after you, and it will involve, he'll be bent on revenge, and it will just cause you no end of 
public trouble and shame and humiliation, and it will just cause you strife. So not only is there that, there's that kind of actually you shouldn't do it in the commandments, but actually there's just a practical outworking. Don't do it because it's going to cause you endless amounts of trouble with the husband. And Joseph is basically looking beyond the immediate. There's an instant gratification with the woman there and then, but actually he's looking beyond that, saying actually beyond that there is a whole world of trouble, a whole world of pain. I'm not going there. So he's loyal to his master. But he's also saying, actually, you're someone else's wife, and I'm not going near that because, actually, it's going to cause me all sorts of pain. Then finally, he says, it's a sin against God. Ultimately, what I do with you, if I lie with you, it's not just uh, I'm sinning against you or your husband. It's actually, ultimately, it's an offense against God. God is the one who's actually going to be, be taken kind of um, uh, offense at what's happened. And this is very similar to what we read in Psalm 51 about David, King David, the great mighty King David who killed Goliath, led Israel, was a, a mighty warrior. In his story, he committed murder and adultery. Um, and actually, when he's, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan and says, it was you, and he writes the Psalm of Repentance, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. So he recognized sin ultimately is an offense against a holy, just God. And so on these grounds, Joseph is like, I am not going to fool around with you at all. I'm not going to come like, I'm just not going to get involved in that. So he's very adamant in his, no, 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 I will not do this. He says to his wife, but how does she respond? Does she say, oh, what a wonderful reasoned argument for why you're not going to lie with me. I will let this one go. No. She says... It says, um, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. So she was relentless in her pursuit of him. It wasn't just a one-off offer. It was a continual, I'm coming after you, I'm coming after you. I want this, I want this from you. And she would not listen to his arguments. So she kept coming, she kept coming. Um, and Joseph said, you know, he, he, he kept refusing. But then this situation arises. He says, but one day. We don't know how long had passed, but the day after day implies many days. A period of time had passed. And it says, um, but one day he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there. Were there. So it, it's kind of an unusual situation, it would seem. He's now alone with her. Normally there are people around, but now he finds himself in a kind of, uh-oh, this is not normal. Um, so the situation has changed, and she comes at him when he is at his most vulnerable, because he's now on his own. There's no one else to give accountability to him. There's no one else who's, who's watching who could stiffen his resolve, if necessary. He's now completely alone. It's only him and her, and in effect, no one can see what's going to happen in that sense. And so she comes, and she comes quite, it seems quite forcefully. She comes, grabs him by the garment, takes hold of him. Come lie with me. Again, this offer, I want to be with you. And she tries to forcefully kind of really push him into basically um, sleeping with her and cheating on her husband. And what does Joseph do? He runs. He runs. It says he, he flees. He gets out of there. He, he leaves. And it says he left the garment that she was grabbing. must have been his outer robes that he wore. He basically, she was holding on to them, and he just thought, well, I'll leave that behind. <laughs> I am out of here. Usain Bolt, pew, straight out the door. There's probably a cloud of dust in his shape like this as he went, and she's literally left holding the garment. For the, the story of Joseph, this is the second time he loses his robe, isn't it? And it doesn't, it's not always in good situations, poor guy. And so he's running out in kind of his under kind of garments that he would have worn. Not this, a bit more than what we think is underwear, but he's, he's kind of his outer garments are gone, and he just runs straight out of the door. 
How does the wife respond in this situation? Oh, okay, he really doesn't want to sleep with me. I'll just let this one go. No, she goes fatal attraction on him. And she's like, oh, hell hath no fury like a woman. Scorn. I mean, there are reasons we have these phrases. And this is one, and I know it cuts both ways, but in this situation, it is a lady. And so she's like, oh, my goodness. What's he going to say? Because she's probably thinking he's going to grasp on me, he's a husband, or we don't know. So she's just like, I'm angry. Someone has turned me down. Someone has turned me down, and I'm going to get him. So she then basically starts spreading lies about Joseph. So she screams. The other servants, the other workers come in the house. What's going on? The woman of the house is screaming. Um, and she starts spreading this stuff about him. And she says some things about Joseph. First of all, she calls him a Hebrew. Doesn't call him by his name, so it's impersonal. And it's playing the race card. This Hebrew, so he's not an Egyptian, he's an outsider, he's a foreigner. This Hebrew um, is coming in and he says he's coming to laugh at us. So it's almost like she's playing him as the guy, he's just taking the mickey, this guy. He comes in here, he's like being shown favor by my husband, and he's coming and he's trying it on with me, so he's laughing laughing at us. She accuses Joseph of actually the one trying to come on to her. Almost, you know, he's accusing her, him, of attempted rape. That's what he's basically, he's basically saying to that. She reverses the order of what's happened. She's saying, actually, he took his robe off, then he fled, when actually he was fleeing and the robe fell off. So she's manipulating the evidence. Um, she ca- keeps hold of the robe so she can use it later to accuse him in front of her husband. She even has indirect, she actually blames her husband. Even says, he brought the sl- this slave amongst us. So even in her kind of crying out, she's actually shifting blame for what she's done onto the husband, who's not even there at the point and is currently ignorant of the entire situation. So then Potiphar comes home, the husband comes home, and she rehashes the story to him again and say, actually, now he's home, I'll let you know what it is. And again, he calls him the Hebrew slave, not Joseph, uh, damning him, you know, reminding him, one, he's a foreigner, two, he's just a slave, he's not kind of one of us, kind of thing. And then she blames her husband, you brought him here. You brought him amongst us to make all this thing. And, and uh, Joseph was portrayed as this cowardly man who was basically trying to take advantage. And she portrays herself as a damsel in distress. Oh my goodness, I was taken on. I saved myself by screaming. Um, and can you imagine what it had been like for Potiphar? He went out to work, I imagine, or he was off doing something. He said he was one of the officials in the court of Pharaoh. So he was off doing his business. He comes home. And his wife's there in a state, you know, kind of built herself up with this Joseph's robe as an evidence. And basically says, this slave you brought into our household has effectively tried to assault me. And, and this is the evidence. And she would have been crying. And can you imagine if that had happened to you? Guys, if someone, you brought someone in your home and they tried to do your wife, you would be absolutely livid. He'd be in a murderous rage. And Potiphar, rightly, believing his wife, is the same. He says his anger was kindled. He was actually really kind of aggressive towards Joseph. And he says, and it says, he describes Potiphar as his master. Potiphar has complete power over Joseph because Joseph is a slave and he's the one in charge. So he just has him thrown straight into prison. Straight into prison because he's an official in the kind of Pharaoh's court. So he can just dump him straight in prison. Dump him straight there. And Joseph has gone from being... Number one, effectively, in the house, back to prison. He, the cycle, again, for his life. He was favored son, and his brothers kind of sold him into slavery. He'd kind of raised up a little bit, and now back, poof, 
back right down where it goes. And so he is just he's back in prison. It's interesting to note that Potiphar doesn't just have him killed, which he probably had the power to do so. You can see God's sovereign hand on that as the story unfolds later, God working his purposes out. But Joseph has basically gone from being doing very well for himself to in a one incident, he has now fallen all the way back down to the bottom and he finds himself in prison. All right, let's look at a few application points. I'm going to look at um, the area of temptation generally. Obviously, the story involves um, Joseph and um, Potiphar's wife there, and Joseph being the kind of the victim, and Potiphar's wife being the villain in the story. But I'm going to talk much more gen- much more generally today, because obviously we all find ourselves in areas of temptation that aren't necessarily like that, and regardless of gender. So, first thing for us today: number one, temptation is relentless. Temptation is relentless. Have you ever been down to the beach? We've got family who live down by the sea, and we always take the boys down there and we go, and you watch the waves coming on the beach, and you can't stop them. I know the boys once tried to build a sandcastle, and I said, why are you building it there? Because the waves are going to come in and take it. And they're like, no, Daddy, no, Daddy, we built it here. And sure enough, within 10 minutes, the waves had come, and they, just, they were wiping out the sandcastle. And so, you know, the waves just keep coming. They don't stop. They're relentless. They keep going. They keep going. And we look in the life of Joseph. What happened? He was tempted. She came to him and said, lie with me. He said, no, very clearly, very strongly. Then what happened? It said it carried on day after day. The idea was actually, it actually increased He said no, and he stood against it, but actually temptation got more. She came at him again and again and again, and eventually she came in forcefully in a situation where he was at his most vulnerable because he was completely alone and cut off, and there was no one else kind of there. He could have got away with it at that point. And so actually temptation for us, we need to learn, is um, relentless. And this is the reality of the Christian life. Temptation is relentless. It's not going to go away. There isn't a point in your life when you're going to reach a spiritual state of bliss, nirvana, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, where actually you are free from worldly things. You're going to have to deal with it till the moment you die. When you die, it'll all be over. That's the good news. But until that moment, you're going to have to deal with temptation in all its forms again and again and again and again. And how do I know this? Because I look at the life of Jesus. God the Son who came to earth, lived on earth as a man, and it said, even he, perfect Son of God, it said when he began his earthly ministry, what happened? He was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and the devil came and tempted him. Even, even Jesus had to face this relentlessly. Beginning of his ministry, throughout his ministry, people try to take him off path, People try to get him off mission. Even one of his best friends, Peter, when he said to Peter, the son of man's got to go die. Peter says, no, no he hasn't. No he hasn't. You don't have to do that. And how does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That's a great way to call your best mate. But he's basically, he's being tempted to get off task. Even at the end of his life, what did Jesus pray in the garden? Father, will you... Make this cup of suffering pass from me. Yet, not my will but yours. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Lead us not into... If Jesus is teaching his followers that actually you pray for God's sovereign grace on your life, that you are free from this and he keeps you away from this, then actually it's something we've got to take very seriously. And we can be tempted 
in many areas of our life, this area, the bit in the story is particularly in a sexual area, but that's just one of many, uh, pride and anger and greed, a whole bunch of things that can come our way. But what we need to remember as believers is let's not be naive, that you are going to be tempted in all its forms, and you'll be tempted in ways that you find yourself kind of most susceptible to. They will come after you. They're going to be relentless. They'll happen today, tomorrow, the next day. On and on and on it will go. And you won't ever be in a position where it's done and dusted. It will always be there, and it will come after you. So how can we, how can we kind of be aware of this? First thing, we need to just be aware in our mind that this is the reality, that actually pride comes before a fall, so the proverb says. And actually, we shouldn't be prideful. I think we're above that. We're not. We're going to be in it. And I, my suggestion would be, in the face of, if you know someone's coming to get you, the enemy's coming to get you, you guard yourself and you get prepared. And my suggestion for us today is, let's be a people prepared. Let's be people who guard ourselves. So what do we need to guard? Number one, we guard our relationship with Jesus. We absolutely do everything we can to make sure we have a vibrant, living, growing relationship with Jesus. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Our purpose of church, we believe real life is having a relationship with Jesus. That's where it all starts. That's what the Christian life is about. And we guard that and we make that a priority. Because if you are strong in God, you are strong in him, you can face the attacks, the relentless things that come against you. Joseph said that, didn't he? If I lie with you, I'll be sinning ultimately against God, he had that perspective of something bigger above him. And let's be people who guard that, who daily guard our walk with God and, and actually say this is a priority, not just because it's something we should do as Christians, actually, but it's actually a form of our warfare, our spiritual warfare, of, of maintaining our life, maintaining our spiritual fervor, maintaining our, our following of what God has called us to. Guard that, keep that number one, keep that a priority in your life. Next thing, next one, number two. Temptation must be fled from. We need to run. We need to run. If something's chasing you, mummy says, run. We need to run. And the New Testament has that kind of theme running through it. You run from temptation. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 22, so all the twos there, flee youthful passions, which is what Joseph would have had. Youthful passions. Hot lady comes to you and says, lie with me. Youthful passion says, hey, jackpot. Run from that. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. That image of running, getting away from something. Jesus uses graphic language in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, you're looking at something, what does he say do? Cut it out. He's not actually saying literally cut it out. Because we've all got our eyes here. You know, that's... He's not saying that. He's actually saying be ruthless about doing it. If your hand sins you, cut it off. He's saying be ruthless. Be, be, be decisive about what you do. Run from it. Get as far away from it as possible. Don't even go near it. Why? Because it will kill you. It will kill you. What I love about that trailer is why are they trying to get away from this new hybrid dinosaur? Because it's going to kill them. Sin will do that. It will kill you if you play with it. It will destroy you. It will destroy your joy. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your relationship with God. It will ultimately wipe you out. It will ultimately wipe you out. And what sin is, the way kind of just a, sin is not, God is not a killjoy. Some people portray him like that. The man in the sky with the stick who beats you if you're having fun. 
God is not a killjoy. God is someone who wants you to experience life to the full. Jesus even said that. I've come that you experience life to the full. He just knows the best way of doing it that brings you the most joy and doesn't destroy you. And ultimately, sin is not living life God's way. And sin is just selfishness and putting ourselves at the center and saying, we're going to make this all about us and our own desires and our own gratification. And it's not believing God as his promise. It's saying, I will love you and I will take care of you and I will provide for you. And having a relationship with me is the most fulfilling thing you can have. That's what it is. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't go that way. He wants to protect you, just like any parent. Just like any parent. And I remember hearing this illustration, a story I'll share with you, that just I, every time I kind of come back to it, it really scares me about the horror of what sin does and how it will destroy you. Um, there's a story in... Um, in, uh, many hundreds of years ago, in kind of the, um, the Russian Urals, where the mountains are and the, the farmers live, and it gets very uh, kind of um, cold and snowy, they have a problem with their livestock and their animals being um, attacked by wolves. And they're like, oh my goodness, the wolves are going to come and get there. And so they're kind of the wolves are their enemy, and they're trying to protect their families, to protect their, their animals from the wolves. And they hit on a way of how do we stop the wolves coming and getting us? We can try and hunt them, but that's kind of problematic. We've got to go out. So what they did was they'd take an incredibly sharp knife, and they would um, soak it in the blood of one of their animals. And they would leave it, and it would freeze. And they'd keep doing that, and they'd basically make an uh, animal's blood popsicle. Sounds pretty gross, but that's what they'd do. Then they'd plant it in the ground with it sticking up and the, the hilt of the knife in the ground. The wolves would smell it. Oh, animal's blood. I like that. Mm, yummy. They would come and they would see it in the ground. They'd start licking it like a child would lick a popsicle. <laughs> yummy, 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 yummy. And they would keep licking it until they hit the blade. And they would keep licking it because the blade was so sharp it would cut their tongue. And they'd keep drinking. Yummy, 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 yummy. Blood, blood, blood. <laughs> not knowing they're actually drinking their own blood. And eventually the wolf would just die there with a knife stuck out the ground, not knowing it's killing itself. That's what sin does to you. It starts out, ooh, good, this is nice. But actually it doesn't tell you what's happening beyond. It doesn't tell you how, this is where it's going. And eventually it will wipe you out. And so my challenge for us today is, what are the times, places and people that you need to run from? What are the times, places, and people that you need to run from? What are the things that you need to just get away from right now that you're dabbling with, that, that are vulnerable people, vulnerable places, vulnerable things that you need to go? I remember a time when I was at university, and um, I remember being with a girl. We were out on a night out, and there was a young lady there who was very nice, and she was very nice to me, and I liked her. And it got to that kind of end of the night moment where it was actually, what's going to happen now? And I'd been playing with fire all evening as a believer, and it suddenly hit me, this is the moment now. I can either choose to lie with her, I use the language from the story, or I can run. And I remember being at that crunch point in my life, and I literally ran. <laughs> And I literally ran out of the restaurant where we were. And I literally ran home like a frightened child. Literally ran home, ran all the way upstairs into my bedroom and got into bed. and just like shaking. Like I came that close to just to doing it. And I, I, you know, 20 years on now, I'm, I'm still living a life where I'm trying to run from things. It's not quite as dramatic as that. 
But actually, I look at my life now and think, where are the things I need to run from? Where are the things I need to protect myself in? Where are the things in my life that I need to put guards to help me so I'm not doing it? Sometimes you get a situation you've just got to run from it. Sometimes you have to put things up in place to say, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to let myself get into that situation. Some of the things I do that helps me is um, when it comes to my work, my wife knows where I am at all times. If I'm going somewhere to meet someone or do something, my wife knows my diary. She knows what I'm doing. She knows when I am. When I'm at home, I work a bit from home, sometimes sermon prep and other bits and pieces. I, my office door is generally open or you can come in at any time. So the kids can come in, Mel can come in. So whatever I'm doing there is kind of public to my family. I avoid... Um, Oh, I do is my wife has access to my phone and my computer. She knows the password on my computer. She knows the, the code on my phone. So she can open it any time. I let her use my phone. She knows what the computer She can get it. So you can be tre- she can be check anything I'm doing on there. Check my email. Sometimes she does. Goes on there to do some stuff. So my, my digital life is as open as I can make it. Uh, when the stuff in the news came out about internet blockers being put on by the internet service providers, I phoned up my internet service provider and said, are you going to put these internet blocker things on so you stop the dodgy content coming in from your end? And they said uh, it was at that moment where you're going to have to opt into it. They, they later changed it without actually doing it mandatory and you have to opt out of it. But I phoned them straight up and said, what are you doing? And they say, well, we're getting it in place and you'll have to opt in. And they changed it and now it's automatic. They actually protect all the, the junk coming into it. So if you go on the internet at our house, you can't get to certain things. Which again, I thought I'm putting that on to make sure he's doing that. I avoid any time I'm spending with the opposite sex. I avoid doing it on my own as much as I can. I'm aware when I was teaching and I was in an environment which was 90% female, that was a little bit more problematic because most of my staff I worked with, my TA, the office staff, my boss, everyone, they were all ladies. And so actually I think you can't avoid that, but actually I made sure that Mel knew all about them. She knew what I was doing, she knew who I worked with. If I could, I could introduce her. This is my colleague, you know, just so you've met people, get it to come into school and meet some people, do everything I can to avoid being in those situations like it. And one of the best things you can do to avoid uh, with the temptation to flee from is tell somebody. If you're married, tell your spouse. If you're not, find a friend and just tell them about what's going on. Tell them about what's happening because actually that, that helps kind of cross the load. So I don't know where you are in your life, but what is it that you need to flee from? What is it you need to run from? What is it you need to tell someone today and say, this is an area where I'm feeling on the edge. I'm feeling like I could give in and I don't want to. Where do you need to run from? And I just last one for this, a caveat that is just worth noting. Joseph did everything right. But what happened to him? He ended up in prison on a sex offender's register. Just because you do it right doesn't mean it's going to go well. That's, that's just the reality. We're called to be right before God first, man second. And sometimes they lead to each other. Sometimes actually they become in opposition. You stand up to something. I won't do that at work. I won't get involved in that. I won't fit on my expenses. I won't gossip about those people. I won't act like that. And that can result in ostracism, being passed over for promotion, and, uh, you know, worse, losing job, who knows? It can have repercussions. And the reality is, standing up for God doesn't necessarily bring good results. And I have to, as your pastor, point that out. But the great news is, as we follow through the life of Joseph, God's sovereign plan is still at work. Last one. Number three, God, temptation can be overcome. Temptation can be overcome. Joseph did it. He ran. 
And we are to run. We are to be people who run. I've done a little bit of running. I'm training from the front run when we go in. And what I found about running is when you go running, you do two things. You run from something and you run to something. You can't run and not do those two things. You're moving away from some point and you're moving towards something else. So my challenge today is to run. To run away from your sin or run away from temptation and run towards Jesus. Run towards Jesus. Why do you run towards Jesus? It says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Whatever you're facing, Jesus knows. We cannot level at Jesus. You don't know. You don't know. He does know. And he went through it all. So he can empathize, sympathize with us. Second one, this is fantastic. Write this one down. 1 Corinthians 6.18. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. What does that mean? There is nothing that you can face that you cannot resist. Whatever situation you find yourself in, God in his grace and mercy says there is a way out. I will provide it. I am sovereign over all things and I will provide you with a way out. You might have to look at it, look for it, and then you have to take it for sure. But he says, I will help you. I will do that. And that is a wonderful encouragement when you you face this. How do we go about running to Jesus? First of all, we renew our mind with the Bible. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans 12.2. We need to get a clear picture of God. We need to be studying our Bible. We need to be around believers. We need to be living it out and actually working out who God is. His wonderful supremacy. The joy we have in him. The fact that only he can truly satisfy our needs. That we so easily try and satisfy with things of the world. We want to satisfy only with Jesus. We need to be people filled with the Spirit. It says in Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To me, men and women, fill of the Spirit. We're going to pray on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night. Come, pray together, be together as believers. Make priority of that. Make priority of Sunday morning. Make priority of life. Because you come and you get built up. You learn something of God. You learn something of His grace and mercy. And it, it strengthens you to live the life, to be what He is called to be. Make it a daily practice of getting in your Bible, asking God to fill you, worshipping I remember a few weeks ago we were at a small group, a uh, life group, and Anna said something about praising, making a lifestyle of praise, and how important that was. And I listened to her and I thought, that's a great idea. And every day now I'm trying to make a point of putting a worship song on and praising God explicitly and saying, I'm just going to praise you and I'm going to say thankful. And I'm not going to ask anything of myself. I'm just going to. And it's amazing what it does in your spirit being, in your man, to actually say, I'm going to love the Lord and I'm going to give myself to him, how it strengthens you and satisfies you for the day. What about when we do fail, though? Anyone here failed? Thank you. The good news is sin can be forgiven. It's forgiven at the cross. Because of the cross, we can be forgiven. What happens when we become Christians? We move from a position of being a sinner to a position of being a son, righteous and holy. That is a wonderful thing. We have a position of grace. We've been moved. But then as we walk the life, we make mistakes. Sometimes our condition gets a little bit marred because we, we muck up. But what we can is we have outrageous, overwhelming grace of God to come back to him. 
and seek forgiveness and put it right. And I tell you, this church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that. I wouldn't be here because of that. God has shown his grace in my life relentlessly. As much as relentless, temptation is relentless, grace is more relentless and more powerful. And his love and his mercy can cover a multitude of sins. And so if you're in the position here and think, it's too late, I've already made a mistake, come get it right. Come to Jesus. Come to him. Run towards him. Get it dealt with. Seek forgiveness. Receive grace. Receive mercy. Your position as a believer doesn't change. Your condition gets messed up. We need to put that right. But we're still on a way. Um, when um, Julian Adams came last year, what did he describe it? An escalator that's always going up. We fall down, but which way is the escalator going? <laughs> it's always going up. You can fall flat on your face, but you're still moving up into more and more grace and mercy and the love of God. So we're going to end now, and it's time to start running. We're going to run towards Jesus. So do you want to stand? Can the band come back and get ready? I'm just going to lead us in a little bit of a response, and then we're going to spend our time running towards him. Running towards him in praise and worship and giving ourselves to him. So do you just want to close your eyes? And if God's highlighted anything to you to this sermon, you'll know exactly what it is, because it's right at the forefront of your mind now. And I want us to do just a little bit of business with God, and then we're going to come and bring him to praise him. So first of all, are there areas in your life where you know you need to run? There's things that you just know in your life, actually, that's an area, and it's you know, causing you problems, it has caused you problems, or you feel like you're on the edge of something. Just identify it now before Jesus, and say, that's the area, I need help in that area. I remind you of that verse that says that there's no temptation overcoming that's not common to man. So what you're facing is not unusual. But God says, I will provide a way out for you. I will provide a way out for you. And I, Lord, I ask by your spirit, you would show people that now. What's that way out? <laughs> How do I deal with that? How do I move forward with that? And Lord of God, I ask for your grace on your people. Maybe you ask it for yourself now. God, give me that grace to run. Give me that grace to run. Give me that grace to run. Run towards you. And what about now if you're standing here thinking, I, you know, there's an area where it's just too late. I've already done something. I've already said something. I've already acted on something. I've already, you know, I've already made that mistake. I would say the grace and the mercy of God and his forgiveness is available to you here and now, right now. And if you want to get right with God, just talk to him. Just say, ask for his forgiveness. He says, repent, which means turn around, turn around your thinking, turn around your heart. I will not go back there. I will move away from that. We're not trying to earn his forgiveness, but we're actually just making a statement and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on from this, God. Just ask him for it now. Bring it to him now. Name it before him and say, God, forgive me for this, for that. One John one eight says, um, "If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness." So, if you've made your, brought something before God, you can receive His forgiveness now in confidence, saying, "Actually, what was bought on the cross is applied to me here and now." I want to say thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that, Lord.